we're concluding a series called Why God Why? And it's all about the theology of suffering. All right, and uh, if you don't have a good th- theology of suffering, I'm promising you, you will fall by the wayside when your faith gets tested. I have seen more of my friends fall uh, by the wayside in their faith and deny God. I have seen more people struggle with the concept of God because of this question than any other question. And if you ever try to talk about God to anybody, I guarantee you this question will come up. So if you don't have a solid theology of suffering, when life hits you smack in the face, you will become overcome with grief or despair and doubt. All right? So we, that's why we're doing this. We have to have a theology of suffering. Matt, Pastor Matt, our senior pastor, um, uh, he's done a great job the last two weeks kicking this series off, looking at this from a couple different angles. I'm looking at it today. Why us? God, if, if we're a Christian, why are you allowing us to continue to suffer? Man, God, I'm your kid. Wouldn't, if you're a good dad, why wouldn't you protect me from this? All right? And so we're going to answer that question. But if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, you got to go back and listen to it. Because each week builds upon itself. All right? And we can't, we can't get to where we're at today if you don't have a good foundation for the last two weeks. All right? and, so, and I don't have time to go into it. And plus, Matt does a great job of doing it, so you don't want to hear me preach his sermon because it's phenomenal. All right? So go back and listen to it online. But I do want to bring us up to speed on a couple things. Um, and it starts with a question, um, I, and I love the way Matt writes because it's the way I talk and write in a run-on sentence, okay? So he, crea- he created this well-crafted run-on sentence that really epitomizes the, the theme behind this message. So let me read it for you here, just to bring you up to speed on why we're studying this. is can God be a good, good father who is all-powerful, able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, merciful and sovereign over all things, who loves us so much that he sacrificed his only son for us and our sin, and yet, dot, 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 run on, all right? And can we fully experience hatred, abuse, unjust persecution, financial ruin, fatal diseases, depression, mental illness, de- devastating consequences of personal Ill, sin, irreparable chronic pain, loneliness and despair, violence and death? The sentence isn't done. And still be in the center of God's perfect will. And the answer is yes. 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 But only, only, if we have a solid foundation on our theology of suffering. Because this, this sentence and question will ruin you if you don't know who God really is. If you don't have a solid foundation, when this is tested, you will be crushed by the waves of despair. Trust me on that. So through this series, we're, we're answering that question. And we got a couple of different passages that Matt's been using and I'm going to continue to use today because it really just, again, sets the foundation. The foundation is what holds the structure up. So it's the same in our faith. Our foundation is what holds our faith up. So this is one of the passages. First Corinthians, I said that first service too. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can just take out of, be taken out of them. No. He comforts us so that we can comfort others. Those in any trouble with the same comfort that we ourselves have then received from God. Keep going. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings. So isn't that beautiful? We get to share abundantly. You, you do know what that means. It means we get a lot of them. All right? We get to share in a lot of the sufferings of Christ. But because of that, we also share in the comfort that abounds through Christ. 
Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christ has done? So if we are distressed, it's for your comfort. If we're distressed, it's for your salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces, I love this. So if all this happens, which is going to in abundance, it produces patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Patient endurance. Who wants to be patiently enduring suffering? But that's the, that's the, the epitome of what suffering is about. And that's the beauty of what Christ has come to comfort us in. And then there's another passage that we use in this process as well. If, if this one isn't depressing enough, trust me, it gets better. Maybe, I hope. It does. I mean, I think it gets better. Um, but look at this. It says, consider it joy, my brothers, when you suffer, right? When you experience trials of many kinds. Whenever you do, those abundant sufferings, consider it joy. Wow. It doesn't say be happy about it. It says be joyful in it. Because you know that the testing of it is going to produce perseverance. That patient endurance is going to create perseverance. But look at what happens. When we allow ourselves to go through this, when we have a solid theology of why this is even happening in our lives, let the perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking, not lacking anything. It's got to happen. Like if we want to become mature, we have to go through these trials. We've got to go through these troubles. We've got to go through these sufferings because it's part of the process. It's what God does to make us complete in who he is. So it's important for us as followers of Christ to understand this whole purpose of suffering within us. So as Matt was talking about those moments of, of suffering and, and how they hit us, he, he did a great job of talking, and he drew a picture. I'm not going to draw the picture, so um, I'm not the greatest artist. So Chris created a, a, a picture for me uh, on a slide, which is going to save you a lot of pain and inability to read. Um, but Matt talked about this idea of a crisis of belief. So here's what happens. As soon as we get into that moment of suffering, now this crisis can be big, it can be little, but it creates a crisis in that moment. And we get in the crisis of belief, and in that crisis, it either, it either draws us closer to God, so it strengthens our faith, or it separates us from God, and we turn from our faith, right? But there's, and then he shared how we always want to go over it. We want to go from mountaintop to mountaintop, which sometimes happens, but quite frankly, in my life, very seldom ever happens, all right? So I usually, and I've always had to go through the valley, all right? Because that's where God teaches me. He teaches you in the valley. He teaches you through the fit of despair, but only if you go to him to strengthen you. And the only way you're ever going to be strengthened through your crisis of belief, is if you have a solid foundation in your theology of suffering. Because God isn't going to be able to use in you something that you're running from. All right. So if you're being separated from it, he can't use it because you're not allowing him to use it. So we, we're inevitably going to go through these crises of beliefs, but what is God going to do that? So it, it always then ends up leaving us with the question of, all right, um, but why me then, God? Because I already, I already had my crisis of belief and understanding who you are, so I turned my life over to you. So clearly, the scriptures say, if I just have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, I can say to that mountain over there, be thou removed. And it says it's got to jump into the sea. So if I just name it and claim it, baby, it's got to do what I say. Now we laugh. But my friends, that's a message of the church that's being preached everywhere. I've got friends that preach those messages from the pulpit. And, and I'm just here to tell you, if that's what you've bought into or that's what you've been taught over the years, when the waves of despair hit, you are going to be crushed because that's not what that verse is saying. But that's what we think when we pray this. We're like, God, just take me out of it. I just want to jump over to that mountaintop. Yeah, but you don't 
want to go through the work of getting there. But the only way we can experience that other mountain peak is to be able to understand what God is doing in the midst of the darkness down in the valley. And so that's why, that's why we do this idea of why us. And so and, and the reason why he has given Christians, followers of Christ, I don't even like the word Christian, followers of Christ, the reason why he allows us to go through suffering is there's a purpose in it. And we've got to be able to understand what that purpose is because if we don't, then we're going to want to try and run from it. And God doesn't want us to run from it because that's, how, that's what he uses. Now in the middle of all that though, there's a differentiation, and Matt touched on it, and I'm going to touch on it a little bit, but it's imperative that we understand the difference before we go too much further in understanding why us. We've got to differentiate between uh, discipline and suffering, all right? So discipline is something that happens to us because of sin. Suffering is hap happens to the world because of sin, and you'll understand a bigger understanding of that, but we have to differentiate what's happening in us in that moment when we're experiencing the pain. Is it discipline or is it suffering? Because they feel the same. But I love a passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of my favorite books, and, and, it, and it tells us the difference, all right? Now, it's not pleasant, but it, it does explain it. So because the Lord disciplines the one who he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son, all right, all right, great, so he disciplines us and chastens us, endure hardship, there's that process again, this whole developing and, and being patient, endure hardship as discipline. Why? Because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, here, this is awesome, I love this, all right? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not even legitimate. You're not even true sons and daughters at all. Now, I'm not going to cuss, but I'm going to remind you of the B word, ends with a D, and there's a few words in there, a lot of people use it as a cuss word. This is what you are if you aren't getting disciplined. Who wants to be that? Nobody, that's never, a, that's never a positive comment when someone says that to you, right? Well, neither is it if we don't get punished or disciplined. So we've got to understand in this process of discipline that when we experience discipline, it's because we're loved. I don't like that. All right, we'll keep going. None of us do. Because moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Now, I get it. In our American 21st culture, discipline isn't exactly celebrated, okay? But it's necessary. So how much more should we submit to the Father of spirit, our spirits and live? See, God is the Father of our spirit. He lives with inside of us, and you need to remember that as we continue to move on. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that completeness, that maturity. Remember what we read about in James. In order that we may share in his holiness. Isn't that awesome? No discipline seems pleasant. That's why it feels like suffering. Because discipline mimics suffering, but it's for a whole different purpose. There's no discipline that seems pleasant at the time, but painful. That's why we don't like it. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, being brought to completeness and maturity. See how the scriptures all work together? Therefore, <laughs> I love this. And this is the last thing. All right, I'll just tell you right now. Now I'm doing it simply because I'm a pastor and, and you guys came to be preached to, so I can say it. But if you go out there, this is not what you want to say to someone who's suffering. Suck it up, all right? That's what this is saying, all right? It says, therefore, if you are being disciplined, then suck it up. Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Now, that's what the, the Bible's saying. But when you're trying to help someone, don't say it in those words. But the essence of discipline is that we do have to endure it. 
because it produces something in us. So when you are a follower of Christ, you will experience suffering and you will experience discipline. I promise you. But you have to understand the difference when you begin to formulate your theology of suffering because if you inappropriately place blame on one or the other, you're going to have a crisis of belief that's going to really not strengthen your faith in God. It's going to separate you from God. So we've got to make that differentiation. Now that's a whole, I could go on and on about that, but the reality is behind this is the reason why God disciplines us is he wants to bring us to completeness. He wants us to patiently endure so that we can become more of a reflection of his righteousness and holiness in the world. But suffering is not fun. So what we've got to do, and I, and I made a little help here so you can identify like, okay, is it discipline or is it suffering in my life? There's just a little question, I, I, uh, a phrase that I give you so that you can identify it in your own life, all right? And you all, you can all begin to identify this in your life if you're a follower of Christ. Discipline is done out of love, but suffering is a, is a result of the curse of sin, but they both feel the same. Discipline's done out of love, suffering is a result of the curse of sin, but they both feel the same. Now, we could argue, well, the only reason why I even have to be disciplined is because I'm sinning, so it's still a result of the sin, so yes. But without that whole argument and cyclical reasoning, just use this as an example, okay, just to help you identify, am I being disciplined or am I suffering because of sin in the world, all right? The, at the end of the day, if you're being disciplined or you're suffering because of the curse of sin, you're miserable either way, all right? And life is not any fun. So it begs the question, begs the question, well, then why suffer at all? If God knew this was really going to happen, then why in the world did he do it in the first place? And that's the, that's the question that has been derailing people for a long time. And so we, we have to be able to answer that question or we're never going to be able to lead people to Jesus Christ. Most followers of, of Christ don't ever get to experience the privilege of leading someone to Christ because we don't have an answer to why would God even do it in the first place. Because we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. Why? Because we're trying to go from mountaintop to mountaintop instead of going through the valley. We do. We, just, we want the same thing in the world. I just want the suffering and pain gone. I don't have an answer for the character of God. But we do. We have the Bible. We just don't like what it says. So we try to bypass the Bible, and it doesn't get us anywhere. So that's why we don't ever lead anybody to Christ. So I, I, I give you this little, this little, uh, these little phrases here, right? to help us understand this idea of suffering and a little bit more of like, why does God allow us as Christians to do it? So in order to understand suffering, we have to understand Jesus, right? All right, that's fair, okay. To understand Jesus, we have to understand Genesis. I don't know about that. Because the Jesus of the New Testament is the answer to the curse in Genesis of the Old Testament. Okay, start back at the beginning of that again. In order to understand suffering, we've got to understand Jesus. In order to understand Jesus, we've got to understand Genesis. Because Jesus is the answer to the curse of suffering in the Old Testament. Jesus in the New Testament is the answer to the curse of the Old Testament. Hmm. I want you to understand something. The church and the world is desperately trying to get rid of Genesis. Desperately. And I say the church because if you've ever been to seminary, you'll know how desperately the church is trying to get rid of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to go down any apologetic messages this day. I'm not going to teach about creation or any of that. I don't even have to. You can believe whatever you want to believe because whether you believe Genesis is an allegory or science, it doesn't matter to make the point of God. 
It doesn't matter to make the point of Christ. Now, personally, I think it matters, and I love apologetics. And if you want to get in that discussion, I'll be more than happy to. But I'm not going to today, all right? That is just another one of my passions. But here's what I do know, that if we want to truly understand what Christ came to do in this world, we've got to understand this genesis. We've got to understand the genesis of mankind. We've got to understand the genesis of sin. We've got to understand the genesis of the curse. We've got to understand the genesis of restoration. And I say the Genesis because Genesis literally means the beginning. So if we want to understand Christ, we've got to understand Genesis. So let's flip to Genesis. And I'm just going to read a couple passages for you just to understand. When we understand this idea of the theology of the suffering, we've got to understand who is God and what is the character of God. So if we want to understand who God is, we've got to go back to the beginning. And this is where so many Christians don't want to go. Like because it, we can't explain it, so then we just get all bound up and we're like, well, Jesus, God is just love. But why is God love? It doesn't make any sense if the curse didn't happen. If Genesis isn't real, then Jesus is worthless. Hear me on that. If Genesis and the curse is false, then Jesus is pointless. If the curse didn't happen, then you guys just go home. Seriously. But how many of us want to go back to Genesis? We don't even like it. We don't understand it. We spend zero time studying it. But it's imperative for us to understand our theology of suffering because it's where we understand it. Look at Genesis 1. It says, God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters of the sea, and he saw that it was good. Then we go on. Verse 12 says, and God saw that it was, and then we go to verse, uh, I think it's 15, 18, and God saw that it was, and then we go to verse 21, and God saw that it was, and then we go to verse 23, the fifth day, keep going, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and God saw that it was, so we're five days in, and each day he ends the day by calling it good. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Ah, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The only created being made in the image of God, story, fact, fiction, you decide, but according to the story of God, man was made in his image. So it's either true or false, made in our likeness so that they may rule over the seas and the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals. Not creation over man, man over creation. The world's got that all jacked up right now too. And over all the creatures that move along the ground, God gave dominion to man for that, okay? Not the world, not science, not the EPA or PETA, okay? Sorry. That is not, that, just take that out. God, forgive me. So God made, God created mankind as well. I obviously just revealed my bias. I apologize. <laughs> I was trying so hard not to do that. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. So either God is a flat out liar or God is very good. And the creation was very good. And the creation of God and the story of God from the genesis of man was good. Or it's all a lie. And there's no need for Jesus. So Genesis 2 then goes on and it's a, rep, it's, a, it's a repeat of the story of the creation. And it repeats the goodness and the glory of God. And it repeats the story of the creation from a perspective where there is no sin. There is no suffering. There is no shame. God walked in the garden in perfect unity with man. Man and woman. 
Guys, now you'll get like, you'll like this one. Man and woman walked naked together in perfect unity. There was no problems, no anxiety, no frustrations, no miscommunication, no misunderstandings, no not being able to figure out what the heck did I do wrong. None of that. It was perfect. And then we get to chapter three. Really? We made it two chapters without screwing this up? We are awful. And you and I would have been just like Adam and Eve. They had one rule, one stinking rule. Don't eat from the tree. There's thousands of trees. Why couldn't they have just eaten from them? I don't know. Why can't you just do what God says? <laughs> so we, we get to Genesis 3. Satan does what he's always been doing. Same thing, the reason why we're studying this question. Why? Satan starts with a semblance of truth. He says, ah, woman, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, that's not false. It's exactly the truth. Because they were already made in the image of God. They'll be like God. He didn't lie. That's what deception does. But he twisted the truth. And that's what the devil's been doing for years. He starts with just injecting doubt into the mind of man and woman so that we can doubt who God is. Isn't that crazy? All the way back to Genesis. This is why we need Jesus. Because it starts there. If I continue to go on and read, I, I, and I would, but there's, for sake of time, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 continues the narrative about man walking in, in the garden with God. And, and so imagine after they eat, all right, so they eat the fruit, whatever it was, we don't know. And then, and then they hear God the next morning. Cool of the day, the Bible says. So they're hiding behind a tree. Imagine, okay, they're hiding. They hear God. Adam and Eve are snuck down behind a tree. He's here. God says, hey guys, where are you guys? Oh, we're hiding. <laughs> hey guys, why, why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree? <gasps> why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Well, how'd you know you're naked? Because did you guys eat the, from the tree? Yeah, but she made me do it. Broken relationship, bam, right out the gate. From that moment, the curse of sin has been breaking relationships, and we've been blaming each other for all the problems of the world ever since. And trust me, at that moment, marital problems happened, okay? It all happened right there. You want to know what happened after that? Then we read the rest of Genesis chapter 3. We read about the curse. And, and, and most people talk about the curse of paying a childbirth for women. You want to know the other part of the curse? And you got to go back and read it. It's you, women, and those of you that have been married long enough, like a week, you'll know you want to control your husband. You want to, you want to make sure he does everything the way you want him to do it. And then you start telling him how he's supposed to do it. And then he's in a wonderment because he tries to do it that way, but then it's wrong then it's next week because you changed your mind about how you wanted him to do it that first place. I'm just joking. All right. Not really, but it's, I'm, not, I'm not doing a marriage conference right here. Okay? But it's the curse of broken relationships ever since the beginning. And then you want to know what the curse of man is? The curse of work. Now, we always had to work, but it's the curse in work. Now, everything we do has thorns and thistles, including relationships. Oh. You mean now I got to work on my relationships? Yeah. And now it's going to be a curse. What was once easy, now it's going to stink. Dang. And then you want to know what's worse? If that's not bad enough, now our marriages are falling apart, families are falling apart right there out of the gate. Now God phew, kicks us out of the garden because now we don't get to walk with God anymore. 
Now, if you take Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Malachi chapter 4 and the 400 years of silence that existed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a story of the brokenness of mankind. So this is, see, this is why I don't need science. Now, I would choose science, but I don't need science to support the story of God and why we need the genesis of man to support the need of Jesus. So in all that, we have the story of how man is decadent and wicked, and if you actually read all the Old Testament, you'd need to put triple X on it, and your kids couldn't watch it, because if you really read it, you'd realize it is full of the brokenness and the depravity of man, and how man tries to fix it, and it's a mess. And everybody thinks, well, God's just a horrible God of the Old Testament. No, God's not a horrible God of the Old Testament. He's only a horrible God if you forgot to read Genesis 1. So the rest of Genesis is him being infinitely patient, and he finally gets the point. He's like, guys, enough. I'm going to send my son. And the curse of Genesis is now going to be broken, and I'm going to restore all things back to order. And just like the Jews, who are still waiting for their Messiah to restore perfect order externally, that's what Christians still want. We are no better than the Jews today of the Old Testament and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that killed Jesus. We still want Jesus. We beg Jesus to fix all the external problems. And he's like, that's not what I came to fix. He came to restore the relationship with us, with God first, and then with the brokenness of mankind second. So we are, why us? Because we need Jesus. Why us? Because he is, he's counting on us to be a reflection of him in his world. Now that could be also messed up, and we could wonder why would God ever choose that. But here's what he did. See, in the midst of all of what Jesus did, he never promises to take us out of suffering. He promises to walk through us with us. Look at this. Jesus doesn't take us out of it. Remember that valley, the crisis. We, don't want, to, we want him to jump us over to the next mountain peak. He never promises that. He says, I will walk through it with you. That is his promise. And yet we beg him over and over and over again, God, just take it away. He's like, no, no, no. You are a reflection of me in the midst of it. The world is desperate to see how to walk through it. I need, you to, I need you to show them the way. So then we go on and he says, why us? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, he tells us why. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new genesis. You are a new creation. The genesis of man, the genesis of your spirit, the spirit of God that lives in you, it's new. Okay? The new has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Christ restored that walk, the walk where we were kicked out of the garden, walking in perfect union with God. Remember, Jesus tore the veil. At that moment that the veil tore, we now get to walk with God like this. Well, that doesn't feel like it. Because you're desperately asking God to take you out of stuff. You're not, you're not asking him to take you through it. You're asking him to take it out of it. So if you're asking him to take you out of it, of course it's not going to feel like he's with you. Because that's not where he's at. He's down in the valley with you. You're looking in the wrong place for where God is. You see, so you're a new creation. The old has gone. You're back to walking in perfect union with God. Now, there will be a day he'll restore all the other imperfections, but that's not what Christ came to do the first time. He came to restore relationships, first with him, then with others. That's it. It's that simple. We don't need good apologies. I mean, I do think I didn't say that. We don't have to have perfect apologetics on science to understand the truth of the nature of Christ. Keep going. All this is from God who reconciled to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave it to you and to me to, to show this idea of reconciliation to the world that's lost. Keep going. That God was reconciled to the world to himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. All the Old Testament, whoosh, 
All the sins that mankind can create washed away. And he has committed the message of, he has committed to us, us, the message of reconciliation. What's the purpose of church? Why us? Because we have the message of reconciliation. But unfortunately, it's the one that we try to cover up and keep secret all the time. Keep going. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You are an ambassador. So God, think of it like this. If God, if you are the only one left alive, how would God's appeal to mankind do? As you're the only ambassador for him. He's making his appeal to the world through you and through me and through our stories of our crisis of beliefs. So because of that, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Man, that's powerful. We are God's messengers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, remember, it just reminds us of that. Remember the passage where it says, we're there because he wants to, he wants to restore us. He, he wants to use our comfort that we've received so that we can comfort others. Ah, so now we go back to the visual of our crisis of belief. So now I want you to imagine your story. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Imagine you're on this growth curve here, okay? Now, I, I told First Service, and I'll tell you guys too, um, I need about 15 of these TVs to actually reflect some of my crisis of beliefs, and that's just the big ones, okay? So I'll just give you a really quick rundown um, so for some of my crisis of beliefs that I, that I know that I'm preaching the truth through this because my theology of suffering is God never moved. I just had to figure out what the heck he was doing in the moment of it, all right? So many people over the years are like, well, Donnie, you were raised, I've been a Christian since I was three years old, and people, when they hear that, like, oh, you have no idea what it's like to serve God then. You don't know what I've come through. And it drives me up a wall because I, I'm not going to go into this with them, but hey, guess what? I got the pulpit, so I get to tell you right now, all right? So my crisis of beliefs were this. All right? At 10 years old, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Okay? At 11 years old, I began my struggle with pornography from that point forward. From 10 to 14 years old, I was bullied relentlessly. As a fat, slow kid, I got the, uh, we called it smear the queer back in the day, and I was the queer that got smeared and king of the mountain. I was the one that got kicked. I, if you could imagine, if it, bullying back in the day, that was me. All right? that, was, boy, that, little, that poor little kid. Okay, that was me. All right? Bullied relentlessly. Age 14, my dad died of cancer. All right. At age 14, we experienced, we were part of a big Pentecostal movement. We had the people come into our church, or into our church, into our living room, and they'd pray over my dad, and we'd lay hands on him, and we'd prophesy over him, and, and they would anoint him and, and give him healings, and they prophesied he was going to be healed and all this other stuff. And then, uh, like two days later, he died. And so I'm 14 years old, and I'm having a crisis of belief underneath the stairwell of the hospital, and God speaks to me in that moment. All right. And from that point forward, I mean, I've been, I know the promises of God from there, but that wasn't where it all ended. That was just one of the many TVs that could be up here. Age 19, you'd think I'd learn God's goodness by then. God had called me into the ministry. I didn't like Christians. I was running from God. I didn't want to be in the ministry. I wanted to go do what I wanted to do. End up in a near-death experience. I was in a coma for three days, drug-induced a coma, laying in a hospital bed, ICU for over a month, recovering as my freshman year of college. God miraculously healed me. Whole another story. Crisis of belief, though, trust me. I had to figure out, is God really good, or is he disciplining me? Then it goes on. And go ahead, as I'm telling you these, go ahead, judge me, all right? Figure out, was it discipline, or was it suffering, okay? Just go ahead. I don't care. I, don't, I went through it, so I already know what I got out of it. You can judge me, though, and then judge yourself on your crisis. Age 20, at age 20, I break my leg again. You'd think I was, I was still running from God. Didn't really like this idea of ministry thing at all. Um, God lays me down on the bed in the hospital. I get the double pneumonia in both lungs. My leg bones were sticking out both ways. Miraculously healed me. I was walking on it in two weeks. Only after I repent. All right? 
Then we go on, age 21, get a disease in my eyes, going to go blind, blah, 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 got to have surgery, go through the surgery. Never had another problem since, but another time where I'm like, God, I'm not even running from you this time. That was a crisis too, all right? Age 21, go through revival at my college. You can go into the books. It's 1994, Wheaton College is going through a big revival, going through all the Christian colleges in the North Realm, and uh, our college happened to be one of them. And uh, I got delivered from the, the throes of pornography, all right? Now, it was embarrassing because I stood in front of 1,200 of my peers and started talking about my struggle with pornography. And you think you can wake up the next morning and look at your friends who are girls in the eyes and be like, oh, dang, how in the world are they thinking about me? It was horrible, crisis of belief. The, the school didn't even want to acknowledge that it happened. So we had to figure out what are we going to do at a Christian school with all these people that are broken and in a mess, Okay. 27, I was a principal of a Christian school. They decided to let my go before my contract ended. Yeah, that was a crisis, all right? Didn't know, didn't understand what that was all about. Actually, I do now, didn't then. So, again, decide, ah, screw the church. I'm tired of Christians acting this way. I'm out of this. So I go to Minnesota, buy a business, start up a franchise, do all this stuff, make more money than I can possibly imagine, <laughs> and then go broke. Learned all about sole proprietorship and LLCs. It's amazing information. Should have known it before I bought a business. Didn't. All right, age 32, rebuild myself, go back through all that stuff, rebuild. If you ever had to rebuild yourself, you know the process there, rebuild myself. Next crisis wave comes through the economy. Portfolio takes a tank, rebuild it, have a rental property. I learn all about what a deed in lieu looks like over foreclosure. I chose deed in lieu, but yet it was still a crisis of belief. I could tell you all about that. All right, finally rebuild it again, rebuild the portfolio, rebuild the ministry, you know, rebuild your life, all these crises. And by the way, I'm married at this time. I'm not going to go into the stuff that my wife is going through. She stuck with me, all right? Praise Jesus, all right? I've got an amazing woman. And then through all this, I'm learning. My curves, my crazy curves is just all over the place. If you think you came to a church where you got a perfect pastor, you better leave because I just screwed it up. All right, so, so then at age 40, I decide, I didn't decide. God laid on my heart, you need to move to North Carolina. I didn't know anybody in North Carolina. The only people I knew in North Carolina are sitting right over there. But seriously, that's the only people in North Carolina we knew. All right? It was at their house. I had one of the most cri biggest crises of belief. I don't actually don't even know if they knew that this was when the crisis actually happened. Um, I went to the mountains while I was there. I had a gun in my mouth. It was ready to end. I didn't want to live any longer. I couldn't get a job for five months. I moved to North Carolina because God told me to move to North Carolina. Nothing was happening. I lost everything all over again. Age 40. Nothing was bad in Michigan. I mean, it was ministry, so there's obviously people involved. But Outside of that, it wasn't anything bad. Why would God do that? Crisis of belief. I know the pain of darkness. I know the despair. I know the waves. Now, fortunately, God got me out of it. I know what it takes to, to go seek professional counseling. Matt still hired me after that anyways. It was amazing. <laughs> All right? God brought us here. I got to meet you guys. God has done an amazing thing. But here's what I know. In the moment when you are walking through your waves... When the waves are crashing down on you, you will never make it if your theology of suffering makes you think for some reason that God is just going to magically bypass suffering. I would have been wiped out. Now, granted, some of those stories were my fault. I learned a lot. I have been a, I've had some difficulties. Might not be the brightest crayon in the box. It's okay. But some of them weren't my fault. I've had to learn the difference. And here's what I want to tell you, so do you. Because here's what I know. With the same comfort that I have received, I want to comfort you. 
I want to inspire you. The world is desperate for Christians who are no longer living in the secrecy of their shame, but they're allowing God to heal the pain so that we can reveal the glory of God. That's what the world is desperate for. Look at, look at what I said in the, uh, this next quote. I can't remember what I said here. So we can't share, there it is. We can't share navigational skills if we never tread the stormy waters of despair. I can't tell someone how to get out of it if I never go through it. Now, your story looks different than mine. Some of you might have similarities, but you all know pain. Here's what I know. Why you? Because God at some point in time is going to use it for his glory, to lead other people to the glory of the transformational grace of Jesus Christ. We exist as a church to humbly point everyone to absolute hope, but the only way we can do that is when we understand why God is allowing us to go through it. And it hurts like crazy in the moment. I wasn't preaching this message when I was going through it. I was holding on to it because I knew it's what I preached before I got there. But in the moment, it hurts. You're tested. But it's what we learn in that moment. We can't, we can't lead people to something that we never experienced. And Christ has come to transform our lives. I want to close with this, with this statement for you. This is, what I know about, this is what I know about the depths. And I've been in the depths. And I didn't even go through the relational ones because I didn't ask Stacy for permission. I didn't even go through. We had to go through all this together as a couple. All right? So if you think that was easy, just go ask her. It's not. Relationships are hard. This is what I know about, this is what I know about God's restorative power. He won't restore what you don't give him permission to heal. If you don't even let him into the mess, he can't heal it. He's, he respects you. He's not going to do it if you don't give him permission. And he won't use what you don't give him permission to reveal. The church is living in secrecy. Look at all the cover-ups that come out. And then, you want to know what I've done in my life? Just go read my book. I, I tell, I'll tell you what I've done. Number one, I don't have a good enough memory to remember how to lie. But number two... It doesn't do any good to keep it all covered up. If you want to judge me, that is fine. God's my ultimate judge. I want to help you learn how not to judge yourself and damn yourself so badly. Because I've learned how to not do that. Trust me, I lived with the church where when I had to file bankruptcy, that was actually harder than overcoming pornography. The church was horrible when I, they heard that I filed bankruptcy. You would have thought I committed the unforgivable sin. Oh, you're a lousy controller of money. Yeah, guess what? I just You don't think I just figured that out? <laughs> Tell me something I don't know. All right? God can't use what you don't allow him to heal. God won't use what you don't allow him to heal. So if you want, oh, God just used me. But if you're still wallowing around in your mess, he can't use that yet. He can still heal it, but he can't use it. Why? Because he doesn't want you to lead other people to the mess. He wants, you to, he wants to use you to lead people out of the mess. Amen. But we've got to reveal the mess first. So here's what I know. When you guys walk out those doors, you're going to go back to life, and some of you are already in the storms of it right now. If you aren't in the storm now, you'll come into the storm. If you aren't in the storm now, you've been in the storm, and you know what I'm talking about. If you've already been in the storm, and you've made it out, and you have a message, then start sharing it with the world, because the world is desperate to hear it. If you're in the middle of it, then trust me, God will help you get through it. If you haven't been in it yet, then trust me, you better get your foundation good because the waves are coming. And here's what I know, God is good. Why do I know he is good? Why do I know that he allows us to go through this? Because we are the ambassadors of hope to a world that is lost. You, my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we are ambassadors for the God creator of this universe. And we get to participate in what he's doing on this world. Now, it might be a tiny little place called Huntersville, North Carolina, a sea of seven billion people. All he wants you to do is affect the people that are directly connected to your life right now. Let's pray. Whew. God, you're good. Thank you, Jesus, so much for the restorative power and the mercy and the grace that you give to us in our lives. Oh, God, forgive us for the mess that we make at times, Lord, because we can make it a mess. God, forgive us for the times where we doubt you when the world just suffers in a mess because of the suffering that exists because of the curse of the world. But Lord, I pray most importantly right now, because we are your ambassadors, I pray that somehow or another we figure out how to navigate the storms of our personal life. Lord, that we allow you to heal what needs healed and we allow you to reveal what needs to be revealed so that we can then be a great reflection to point others to the amazing grace of Jesus. And Lord, I do believe it's only in our, it's only in our brokenness that we can actually humbly do this. Because, Lord, it's in that brokenness that we reveal just how much we're just like everybody else. Lord, we have your message of hope. Lord, let us reflect that in the true nature of who you are. And if we haven't quite figured that out internally right now, then let today be the day where people's faith is strengthened and no longer separated. And where they turn back to you or they turn to you for the first time and say, you know what? I have looked at Christ wrong my entire life, and I am, I am ready to begin my new genesis, the new creation of my soul. God, we thank you for that. Forgive us, Jesus. We love you, and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.